Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Padula, the creator and host of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. This is a recent conversation that I had with Jack Henneman. He is the creator and host of the History of the Americans podcast. Um, in our discussion, we we take a look at a few different topics. We start off with discussing some of the colonies that were surrounding Rhode Island in the 17th century. We then look at the founders of Rhode Island. So we'll start with Roger Williams, but then we'll also um, cover Anne Hutchinson as well. And then we wrap it up by discussing just how incredibly radical of a society Rhode Island was in the 17th century, but also why Rhode Islanders um, should be so proud of, of the state's history. So I truly enjoyed this conversation with Jack, and I hope you do as well. Thank you so much for being on the, the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Super excited to have you here. Um, if anyone is not familiar with Jack's podcast, you definitely need to give it a li listen. It's incredible. Um, for those who listen to my podcast, uh, he has about six episodes specifically that discuss uh, some of the early founders of Rhode Island. So, um, Jack, to start, I'd like to discuss presentism a bit as well. But then also go into your podcast and, you know, what it is and what it's all about. So I've heard you say before that presentism obscures rather than illuminates the past. So with that common in mind, do you mind telling my listeners a little bit about your podcast and what it's all about? Sure. Well, first, let me thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure. I always like getting on with other history podcasts, especially if they're as mired in the 17th century as I've been for the last, you know, year and a half or something myself. Hmm. Uh, it's uh, really a fascinating and decisive time in American history, especially the 1630s, um, where you saw the founding of uh, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Netherland, full the full flowering of uh, Virginia. And, and so, it's a uh, it's a really great time to study, and uh, eventually I'm going to move beyond that in mind. But uh, I encourage everybody to learn more about those early days because they're they're remarkable, and uh, I think you've done a great job with the Rhode Island pieces that I've been uh, able to get through up till now, uh, which Thank is you. probably a half a dozen episodes or, or more even. Uh, so uh, delighted to do that. Um, so um, look. Presentism is easily uh, defined at a very superficial level and much argued about in sort of technical terms by academic historians. Mm. Um, another sort of $5 word that is close to it in meaning is anachronism. Uh, but presentism is really the assigning or the, 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 uh, examination of events in the past um, with too great an inflection of the morality of the present. Um, it is all uh, example I give in one of my episodes. You know, it is you know easy enough to denounce somebody who burns down an indigenous village and kills a lot of people. That's mm -hmm. easy to do. 
nobody alive today thinks that was a good thing to do. Um, but simply ending with that inquiry or denouncing the people who did it because we would not do that today, yeah. uh, I think misses the opportunity to understand why they did it today. Mm. Uh, and it, it it could not have been, in my mind, that everybody then was just evil. Um, it couldn't be in my mind then that everyone was just following orders. The interesting question is not why a few self-interested people whose names come down to us burned down that indigenous village in my hypothetical example, which happened plenty of times. But rather, uh, why did ordinary people do these things? Mm. And I think that understanding that is incredibly important. And, you know, people are, um, to a great degree, very willing to be open-minded about horrible things that go on in other countries today. Mm. It's very easy to uh, look at those things, and we may strongly disapprove of them, but it's very easy to say, well, th that's a different culture. Yeah. Those are different people. Well, you know, it's a truism in the study of history to say the past is another country. It really is. Mm. And yet uh, we're far less willing to look at, in many cases, and especially in sort of public discourse, sorry, there's a dog shaking in the background here. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, you know, we're, we're far less willing to look at the um, our own past as if it were another country and say mm. these people were affected by entirely different things. They were uh, influenced by different social factors, different economic considerations, different religious considerations, different understandings of the natural world, different political uh, development, uh, and so forth. Yep. And if you if you simply say this was all horrible, which seems to you know accompany an awful lot of frankly, even the teaching of history, at least certainly before you get to college, um, you know, you give people an easy way out. They don't have to do the hard work of understanding why these people did these things. Mm -hmm. And that's that's broadly speaking what I mean by it. Yeah. Um, and then so tell us a little bit more about like your podcast, like how long has it been going on for? How many episodes? Uh, expand on that a little for us sure thing so i um i i sort of did a bunch of prepare i got the idea in really october of 2020 i i went on a uh three week four and a half thousand mile drive about during the pandemic i wanted mm -hmm. to see my mom so i swabbed up and and drove from austin to charlottesville and I visited my mom and having done that and and uh, all uh, regard for safety at the time, I, I then uh, drove around uh, really all the way almost to the border of Canada and the Adirondacks, visiting friends uh, along the way, did some hiking. And I, I sort of um, uh, kept uh people who are mostly still at home uh, informed on Facebook about all the stuff I was seeing and different, mm. different behavior around the country, cultural 
differences in responding to the pandemic and all that stuff. And uh, listen to a lot of podcasts. And then a law school roommate of mine sent me a text and he said, oh, you got to listen to the History of England podcast by David Crowther. So I started doing that. And that is indeed a super granular telling of the history of England. It's been around like 12 or 13 years, I think. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, he's sort of 300 and I don't know, 30 episodes in or something like that now. And he's only in the first half of the 17th century, too. Wow. <laughs> so I thought, you know, has anyone really done this for the Americans? And they it really hadn't. Mm. Um uh there are uh as you know better than i do there are a zillion history podcasts mm-hmm. um and some are very uh um sort of general and they'll t- you know they'll talk about you know the great awakening one episode and prohibition the next episode you know they yeah. sort of bounce around and some are sort of hyper-focused. Uh, I believe you have one of those, the history yeah. of Rhode Island, <laughs> you know, the history of the American Revolution. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But nobody had really done uh, um, the sort of thing I at least conceived of doing. So I sort of came back and I taught myself how to do a podcast. Uh, and I'm sort of an old guy. So I, I uh, uh, you know, old dog, new tricks, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I started writing and the, and the first thing i did was read a couple books on jamestown and a couple books on plymouth hmm. and then i realized i was doing it all wrong uh at, at some point i had i realized there's been you know kind of a hundred years of spanish exploration of the lands now encompassing the united states hmm. before anyone before the english really knocked on the door and and even if you go back to various of the English voyages in the very early 1600s, um, you know, which uh, hit the coast of New England and and so forth. So I I rolled it all the way back and I started right before I did a couple episodes on the Indians of North America before Columbus, mostly relying on 1491 by Charles Mann. Yeah. And then and then I I, I I did five episodes on Columbus. Because uh, without him, nothing happens the way it happens. Mm. Uh, And you need to understand what he did to understand all the Spanish incursions into the, you know, um, Florida, the Gulf Coast and and Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Do you discuss um, Verrazano? at all i know you have an episode on him but do you get into him exploring narragansett bay as well yeah i did one episode on uh on verrazano and i talked about the one version of how rhode island got its name oh yeah uh and um samuel elliott morrison's theory was that he actually saw block island which looked like the isle of Rhodes, Mm -hmm. and then that got transposed by cartographers to a quidnic mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't much look like the isle of Rhodes, uh but that this then got you know described on maps and everything else and uh eventually made its way into usage but i i, I uh it's been two and a half years since i did that episode <laughs> so it's possible i forgot a detail or two along the way yeah bringing it way back for you um 
So it, you were mentioning some of the early explorers that um, visited the, the lands that now make up um, the United States of America. Um, I, I want to discuss as well some of the colonies that were eventually built in New England. Um, and I want to discuss them because they, of course, play a, a pivotal role in Rhode Island's history and really disrupting a lot of Rhode Island's history and some of its attempted progress. So I want to look at Massachusetts and the Puritans and Plymouth and the Separatists. So do you mind helping my listeners better understand, like, who are the Puritans? What do they believe in? Who are the Separatists? What do they believe in? Where do they differ? And why is conformity um, conformity is something that's so important to both of their societies. Sure thing. Okay. So uh, regarding conformity, and we can circle back to that, conformity is the idea that everyone living under a particular ruler should believe the same religion. And that was a universal view, certainly in all of the Christian world, uh, mm. which is why um, in places with significant Protestant uh, uh, Protestant movements after uh, Martin Luther, uh, such as France, they fought these sort of existential religious wars uh, yeah. that were unbelievably brutal. Um, so, you know, basically you had to believe in the same ruler because that was or the same God in the same way because the linkages between monarchy and ecclesiastical um, authority were very tight. Mm. Uh, and so if you didn't, you were a rebel and had to be dealt with as such. And, you know, kings are not all that keen uh, with rebels. The weird thing about England or the unusual thing about England is that it had a sort of uh, um, mixed reformation, an incomplete one. Uh, and it, of course, began famously with Henry VIII uh, severing ties with Rome so that he could uh, get divorced and uh, remarry and father a son. And so the, the uh, Anglican Church uh, was, was, although Protestant in the way we think about it today, um, retained a great many of the trappings of um you know catholicism um and that came into being but at the same time calvinism true um uh, true reformation religion was spreading into england hmm. and uh so they had this top down revolution driven by henry the eighth and then reversed by mary uh, Mary Tudor, and then reversed again by Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, true Protestantism was spreading. And the true Protestants, these Calvinists took various forms, uh, Presbyterians in Scotland. And in England, um, they became Puritans. Mm -hmm. Most of the Puritans found a way to operate, uh, under Elizabeth anyway, within the Church of England. And they essentially would go to the Church of England. They'd do the Church of England things they had to do to stay in good stead and not get fined for not going to church and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but by the same token, they would then gather and, and have separate worship services and everything else. So they operated within that. 
Yeah. But there was a a sort of a and all of this could be quibbled with. It's all generalization, high level. But yeah. um, there was this basic problem, which was if you were a true Protestant, uh, you viewed the Church of Rome as having been corrupted by the Antichrist. The Church of Rome was doing Satan's work. Mm. And the next question occurred to a lot of Englishmen, which was, okay. Well, we still have the same hierarchy of sort of clergy and bishops and archbishops that we had before. They used to report to Rome. Now they report to the Archbishop of Canterbury or whatever. Hmm. But but how have they explained how they're not doing the work of the Antichrist? Hmm. And this became an extremely troubling question. And there was a movement, uh, they're known as Brownists, uh, a guy named Brown um, um, sort of started to work this through and it emerged in um, various parts of England uh, and developed followings. And the Brownists uh, were not playing ball and um, essentially, you know, um, concluded that they had to separate. And, um, and that's the original story of the sort of separatists who eventually, uh, uh, um, you know, a subset of whom fled to Leiden in the Netherlands uh, in, I think, 1607, about as Jamestown was getting going. And they were there for a number of years. Um, so you had Puritans who uh, were adamant that they remained a part of the Church of England, and then you had separatists who were also Puritans, yep. uh, but uh, had concluded they could not any longer be part of uh, the Church of England, and 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 so um, these were, you know, all dissidents at some level, um, but the conventional puritans did a better job for a while of of you know staying out of trouble then what happened after elizabeth died and james the first uh succeeded her is uh the the crown uh became more committed to conventional uh the conventional church and um and that got very bound up in royal assertions of power uh, um, from first James I and then his son Charles I more aggressively, trying to claim contrary to English law and tradition, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, rule by uh, absolute authority. Hmm. And that that was a big departure. And, and really... Um, there were uh, began to emerge sort of you can't call them political parties, but call them, you know, factions among the elites in England mm. that were, you know, hardcore royalists and clearly devoted to the Church of England. And then a subset of um, and you could never call them you know, small D Democrats or small R Republicans, but call them parliamentarians 
people sure. who believed in the assertion of parliamentary power. And for all kinds of reasons, most your most Puritans uh, uh, aligned with the parliamentarians. Yeah. And and this created uh, um, a sort of commingling of a political crisis and a religious crisis that eventually resulted in a lot of sort of mainstream Puritans deciding that they also had to leave England. And, mm. and that triggered the so-called Puritan Great Migration, which resulted in Puritans leaving um, uh, England to go all sorts of places, yeah. uh, including uh, tens of thousands to the Caribbean, uh, a whole bunch to Ireland. And, and then the famous Puritan Great Migration that influences the history you're concerned with, and, and I am, uh, to Massachusetts, famously first under John Endicott in, in 1628, and then uh, sort of laying the groundwork at Salem, and then John Winthrop and the Winthrop fleet coming in 1630. Yep. So that, 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 I hope that's a decent high-level explanation. And then, can do you mind talking about conformity as well? Because Edmund Morgan talks about that a lot in his book, The Puritan Dilemma, about just how good Massachusetts was at ensuring everyone conformed to their society. Those who didn't, Roger Williams, Ann Hutchinson, you're out, you're gone. Um, why is that so important? Why do they need to make sure that everyone adheres to their specific religious beliefs? Well, because... Uh... So there's probably a couple of things to be said about that. One is there is apparently a bunch of more recent scholarship that sort of argues that a bit later, um, starting maybe in the 1640s, there was a lot of splintering even among the, the Puritans in New England. Mm. Um, so that the enforcement of conformity began to break down not long after the expulsion of Williams and Hutchinson. This is not a topic about which I know a great deal, okay. but it should be said. Yeah. Um, the the um, um, high-level concern was this. The Puritans operated under a commitment, um, uh, well, under a, a sort of body of theology, which might be known as covenant theory. Yeah, And they believed that they entered into in the forming of a church, a covenant with their fellow congregationalists uh, to establish the church and a covenant with God. They also believed that nations had covenants with God, that, mm -hmm. that as Israel had had a covenant with God, so did England, uh, mm -hmm. that it made no sense to them that Israel would be the only nation on earth, the only religious nation on earth that had a covenant with God. But they did take from the Bible the very uh, potent Old Testament lesson that when the nation breaks its covenant with God, when it deviates from God's law in some meaningful way, uh, it will bring the wrath of God down upon it. And mm -hmm. indeed, Concern that this would happen to England was a big part of Puritan anxiety under James I and Charles I. They uh. saw this drift towards popery, as they might have called it, not the delightful 
you know, petals you put in your bathroom, but Pope with a <laughs> RY at the end of it. Uh, and um, yeah, they they uh, were concerned um, that they would the nation of England would earn God's wrath. And indeed, um, England at that time was beset by economic depression. Yeah. Uh, there's all the literature, which um, I've talked about at various points in my podcast about, you know, the uh, impact of enclosing the commons on and the collapse of the of the of the um, wool cloth mm. trade in, in Flanders and all these other things that that brought a lot of economic misery to England. And yeah. the Puritans thought that this might well have been because England had fallen away from God's favor. So mm. when they embarked for the new world, uh, it was very important to them that they establish a covenant with God in that capacity and that they not incur God's wrath. And, and some of this is laid out in uh, Winthrop's uh, famous sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, which gave us the legendary um, phrase, you know, we shall be seen as a city on a hill, yeah. which still resonates through American politics, although almost nobody knows what he actually meant by that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the nerds. <laughs> not, sure, not sure Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama had studied it closely. So, uh, and, and so, um, when you had a dissident, Roger Williams or Ann Hutchinson, um, they, 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 they put the uh, magistrates of Massachusetts in an impossible spot. Yeah. Uh, their view was if they are not saying what is true in the religious sense, they will bring down God's wrath on the entire community. And so mm. it was very, therefore very high stakes for them. Yeah. And, and so they had to deal with it. Yeah. So let's segue from that, then the need to conform a whole society needing to conform. And if you don't, essentially you'll feel the the wrath of God. Let's, let's bring that to Roger Williams. Um, one of the things that I think is so fascinating and John and Barry does a great job in discussing in, in his biography about Williams is how incredibly radical the town of Providence was when it was founded. And then eventually the whole colony of Rhode Island. So you were touching on it there with the, the, uh, religious freedom part where he was saying we're going to separate church and state but then there's also the democratic form of government that he creates in providence and eventually rhode island so help my listeners better understand help paint the picture of just how incredibly radical of a place providence and rhode island was what else is going on around the rest of the world that makes providence rhode island such a, a unique place okay so uh if we could maybe backpedal slightly and get to Williams' uh, particular views. So Williams, um, Williams had uh, the personality or the intellectual inclination to fearlessly pursue everything to its logical end, wherever yeah. it led him, and how uncomfortable it might be. And um, he and 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 John Barry and Edmund Morgan both. Uh, together, I think, um, um, 
explain this process, which we could take hours on. Rather than doing that, it simply came to the general idea that that in doing that, Williams concluded that um, um, that even churches interfered with uh, or could interfered with an individual's communion with God. Uh, that that was an individual communion, and that if one entered into worship with uh, somebody else who was not fully as justified, meaning just, um, uh, you risked uh, essentially corrupting the perfect and pure kingdom of heaven. Mm. And... Uh, so he became this sort of extreme separatist. Now he had a great advantage. He had a- several great advantages. One is he had a very winning, kindly personality. Yeah, and everybody, or almost everybody—not John Cotton, but almost yeah. everybody—liked him. Yep. Uh, secondly, he was immensely. Uh, successful in his other endeavors, uh, which uh, readers of Barry's book know, I describe in my podcast. He learned Algonquin of the region better than anyone else. He he thought he he unlike others were committed to the conversion of the Indians, mm. and he felt that he couldn't even begin to do that till he learned their language. Uh, so over a course of years he became extremely influential and um um uh but but his religion became decidedly incompatible with the bay um but unlike ann hutchinson the case of ann hutchinson like winthrop never hated williams or didn't for a long time yeah uh and they corresponded long after his banishment williams rendered services once banished he rendered services to the bay colony helped them at the beginning of the pequot war with some indian alliances and other things so so williams uh um was ultimately banished uh in late 1635 uh and he was allowed to stay through the winter in salem if he sort of you know kept his mouth shut but he had a hard time keeping his mouth shut and word got back to Boston, and the magistrates decided that he had to be arrested and sent to England. Mm. And so uh, they sent John Underhill and 10 men after him. But Winthrop tips him off yep. and says, you know, because if Williams had been sent back to England, he might have been executed. That was sort of the peak of the oppression of the Puritans in England. So Williams flees into the wilderness, and over the course of the winter, moving sort of from one tribal village to another, he makes his way to Narragansett and he uh, um, basically cuts a deal with the sachems in the region uh, first to stay sort of on the east side of the bay. And then, and then, and then the Plymouth colony, which technically had a claim to that land said, you know, Edward Winslow was like, all right, you're really going to cause us problems because Massachusetts is ten times our size, and they'll come, uh, they'll come hurt us if we're harboring you. So he he had to go across 
uh, uh, you'll tell me the name of the river. I'm choking on it. But he had to go across the river and he, he settled in Providence with the permission of Canonicus, yep. who was the sachem there. And he established uh, a sort of a absolute uh, freedom of conscience in religious matters, which mm-hmm. he then through ins and outs for a long time, I uh, was able to enforce. Um, and it, you asked for an example of presentism. So, mm-hmm. you know, he established a sort of clean and complete separation of church and state. And yep. we might say, well, that's an incredibly modern, but he actually approached it totally differently than Americans today do today. Mm-hmm. We believe in separating church and state, most Americans, because they're worried about the influence of religion on politics. Yep. Hang on one second. Hubble, be quiet. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> uh, uh, in William's case, he was worried about precisely the opposite, yeah. that the commingling of the state and the religion would corrupt the 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 perfect purity of God's kingdom. So he he arrived at his answer by means that are totally alien to the way Americans think today. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's something that was shocking to me and something that is often missed is that he wanted the separation of church and state to protect the church. And at least when he was in Massachusetts, he was pretty religiously conservative if that's the right word where he was very strict about who could be admitted into the church um which is something that i always found really interesting and something that i was super surprised to read about because you think about someone who speaks about religious freedom this man must be incredibly liberal in his thought of who can be a part of a church but it wasn't always like that for him he was quite conservative if you could use that word well i don't i don't even know if conservative is right i'd, I'd almost say radical he yeah. he had a um well, uh, to give you an example, he uh, was uh, in Salem, and that was not um, uh, strict enough for him or pure enough. So he went to Plymouth, and in um, Plymouth was filled with separatists. You'd think yeah. that that Williams would be fine there, but yeah. Williams was a purist. Not just a Puritan, yeah, and 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 he was very concerned. For example, when um, members of the church at Plymouth would go back to England, and they go back to England and they'd yeah. go to services in the Anglican churches, yeah, and then they'd come back, and he'd sort of say, "Well, you were just in communion with the people who had been in communion with the Antichrist, yeah. I I can no longer worship with you," and needless to say. This sort of um, very, uh, you know, sort of um, unbounded separatism was even annoying to people like William Bradford and William Brewster. So so, uh, I don't know that they booted him out, but they they, uh, were happy to see when he left and went back to Salem. And then that led to his ultimate uh, banishment, where he went and founded Rhode Island. It's interesting in um, Edmund Morgan's book, The Puritan Dilemma, which I think he wrote in the 50s or, or something, I'm not really sure. He almost has a 
a negative view of Roger Williams. Like this I, guy. I have it, I have it floating around somewhere. I could probably even validate that. <laughs> <but> anyway, sorry. <laughs> and, well, it's interesting because he has this negative almost negative view of him. I don't really want to speak for for Morgan, but like then when he writes the book later summarizing his religious beliefs and his political beliefs, he's he kind of says that was wrong. The guy was just kind of yeah. going to which is really I, I think Edmund Morgan's an incredible historian. I think that like makes him even better because he's like, hey, I, I misinterpreted what this guy was saying. Yeah, so. I, it, well, he he says in the book on Roger Williams that he'd gone and read everything Williams ever wrote, which yeah. I think exceeds a thousand pages of his stuff still survives. And so, wow. you know, there's a real uh, ability to get inside Williams thinking. Um, I want to move on to Anne Hutchinson but I have one somewhat random question for you that I've been asking myself since I started working on this podcast a year ago. And the question is, do you think Roger Williams and John Winthrop were friends? And I ask that because Roger Williams always seems to be corresponding with him. Um, he helps John Winthrop when it comes to ensuring the Narragansett side with Massachusetts for the Pequot War. But then John Winthrop also spends a number of years trying to steal Rhode Island, Rhode Island's land. So I've always found their relationship incredibly interesting. And I've been trying to like understand were they friends or not. So I don't know if you have a take on that, if the two, the two were friends or not. Well, John Winthrop was a politician mm. and he regarded it as his job to keep the Massachusetts Bay together, unified mm. and conforming. Yeah. He had a high regard. All evidence suggests he has a, he had a high regard for a long time for Williams until he got kind of exhausted by him, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that he found Williams to be. Um, uh, I think he liked him as a person and found him to be exasperating as somebody who had to deal with it. And and. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, kind of 40 miles from Boston or however far it is, yeah. um, there would be this settlement of sort of, you know, kind of dissidents uh, hmm. that had an excellent deep water port and was beginning to conduct trade with New Netherland and England on their own and becoming its own force. You know, that was a very... Um, that was that was a nettlesome problem for Winthrop, mm. given Winthrop's mindset. Yeah, that's my take. That's my take. I, I can't say I'm an expert on it, but yeah, I've always found it interesting. Um, all right, I want to move on to Anne Hutchinson, and I want to discuss some of the things that she's credited for that are remarkable. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on that first. But then I also want to discuss some of the ways that she's almost misunderstood um and you say how one like looks at Anne is sort sort of a rorschach test uh for for someone to take so let's start with like what what is undisputably true about Anne hutchinson um tell my listeners about how remarkable it is that a woman Anne hutchinson was able to cultivate such a, a devout following in 17th century new england yeah so um as you know, I did three episodes on Anne Hutchinson and I give my take sort of at the yeah. back half of the uh, final one. Um, th 
so Anne Hutchinson, uh, Anne Hutchinson's father was a Puritan dissident in England. And he was persecuted for his views, tried, tossed in jail for a while, um, but uh, emerged and eventually as the Puritans began to gain power, um, rose to some measure of authority and credibility in England. And um, part of that was that he later in life developed a seems to have developed a capacity for compromise for smoothing over differences mm. maybe he lost some of the you know fire of his youth and realized that some some battles weren't worth fighting because they couldn't be won <laughs> but in any case she grew up um uh clearly though you know, hearing from her father um, that, you know, you know, um, well, well, he famously had 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 written a transcript of his own trial from um, from uh, memory. Mm. And um, he um, uh, would read this aloud to his children apparently sort of, you know, making fun of the bishops who had testified against him and all this stuff. So it, Anne learned uh, at an early age uh, that, you know, clerical authority was something that could be challenged and even mocked. Mm. Um, uh, and so in that regard, she had quite an unusual upbringing. Um, she married uh, uh, Will Hutchinson, who uh, came from her town and uh, uh, he turned out to be uh, both uh, immensely um, successful in business. When he got to New England, he was probably the second richest guy. Um, and um, he also clearly adored his wife yep. because he tolerated her doing things that, you know, um, were certainly unusual uh, for their time. You know, yeah. he essentially um, supported her when she, you know, created such disruption in Massachusetts that they had to leave and go to this godforsaken place at Aquidneck, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and he had to leave behind the businesses he'd built and all the rest of that, right? Yeah. So so um they get to Massachusetts uh and as the Williams affair is heating up. Mm. Um and they join uh the church in Boston and um um they had been in uh England followers of John Cotton uh, and he had come over the year before. And so they were in effect follower two years before, a year and a half before. They were in effect following John Cotton over. Yeah. And um, uh, she had continued a thing that she'd been doing, which is she would get together with other women after church and they'd talk about what uh, they'd heard. Um, but she seemingly was so learned 
and charismatic uh, that her after church discussion groups grew and grew and grew. And it, it wasn't just sort of, you know, you know, a half dozen women from the congregation sitting around quilting, talking yeah. about <laughs> the sermon, but, but there were sort of a, a, eventually sort of 80 people crowding into her house or sitting outside listening to her. And they began to uh, attract um, in their audience uh, some of the leading men mm-hmm. of of the colony, including Sir Henry Vane, who had come over and had been elected governor because uh, of his nobility. In effect, they thought that if they elected him governor, they might attract other nobles and that that would uh, help them. Um, uh, secure the legal status of the colony against potential threats in England. So um, many of the leading men of Boston started listening to Anne Hutchinson Mm. and Anne Hutchinson, uh, um, who I I would say viewed herself as elaborating on the teachings of John Cotton Mm -hmm. uh, was very concerned with the path to justification in uh, their church. Justification, as I said, was the uh, essentially the uh, condition under which um, the uh, Holy Spirit entered you and uh, um, uh, determined that you were saved and would yep. go to heaven. So I, I think the crucial uh, theological point, again, super high level. Um, The Puritans uh, were big believers in predestination, and there's a whole internal logic to that. Uh, The idea that um, you were saved or you were not, Mm. and there was nothing you could do to indicate that you were saved. Uh, Nothing to uh, rather... I said that wrong. Nothing you could do to improve the odds that you were saved. Yep. Um, so they called this idea a covenant of grace. Uh, you either had grace or you didn't. Um, this created a big problem for the Puritans, right? Because it could lead to sort of nihilism. Mm. If everybody's saved or not, then why not just lead any libertine life you wanted to lead? Yeah. Well, in fact, it led to the opposite effect um, because the Puritans also said that even though, um, uh, even though nothing you did, it could change the odds of whether you were saved, um, your behavior could indicate that you were in mm-hmm. effect. Yeah, And so it became very important in this society for people to behave in a very godly way and to uh, essentially, you know, evidence that they were saved. Well, yep. this crept dangerously close to the thing that Calvinists had rejected, which was a so-called covenant of works. This is mm-hmm. what Catholics taught, that your chances of going to heaven were amplified or improved by good behavior on earth. Mm-hmm. Puritans thought that if you believed that, you almost certainly weren't justified. Yeah. So so she uh, sort of uh, first started taking the point of view that most of the ministers in the colony were actually preaching a covenant of works 
uh, when they talked about all the things you might do to demonstrate that you were saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, uh, she went, or at least her followers went a step further and they began to claim that they could see who was justified and who wasn't. So they, they took the point of view that they could look upon you. They could look into your soul yeah. and decide, you know, you you're in, you're not. And this is obviously incredibly divisive. Yeah. Uh, and it really set up the Boston congregation greatly at odds with all the other settlements in the region. Mm-hmm. And it was deeply concerning to John Winthrop. So, um, you know, this history is well discussed in my episodes and uh, and and uh, um, uh, yours. The 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 um, the the authorities in the Bay had to contain this somehow. Yeah, and you know they had a problem, which was the governor was a big believer in Anne Hutchinson, so yeah. it took a while. Uh, and 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 so uh, the whole thing was provoked by a very sort of hardline conventional uh, minister in Newtown, Cambridge, a guy named Shepard, and he sent Cotton a list of interrogatories, and this all became a huge controversy. Uh, but at the uh, 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 at sort of the the uh, crucial moment when the the inquiries after having ex- you know they expelled and Hutchins's brother-in-law who was this minister named John Wheelwright who wouldn't give an inch and they sort of expelled some other people and they passed some immigration law they passed an immigration law the first immigration law in North America hmm. to control the influx of new radicals from England uh and they sort of they 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 sort of did all this and eventually uh, called Anne herself to appear in court and this created a big problem for them because in principle Anne had no official position you know yeah. women women weren't in a position of authority so they, what could they do that was wrong I mean you know so the 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 trial of Anne Hutchinson which is really the only um that and her excommunication hearing from her church are really the only two um, transcriptions of her words that we have. She didn't write like William. She had like a million kids to raise. So, uh, you know, this trial uh, to a modern uh, uh, eyes um, is uh, super, um, you know, um, offensive. You know that the, the there's 40 magistrates. She's pregnant, sick, and mm-hmm. standing up in this room, and they're, they're essentially grilling her one after yeah. the other. And her responses are uh, in the main magnificent, and so she's yeah. super super witty, and she defeats their questions one after another. And um, uh, but then at the end of the trial, when it it seems she's defeated all the arguments against her, she kind of blows it. Yes. And, yeah. And 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 starts lecturing the court on how they really ought to be thinking. And in the course of that, uh, she makes a, a fatal theological error, which she asserts that she knows what she knows by divine revelation to her as mm-hmm. Abraham had divine revelation. And this yeah. is a gigantic violation of Puritan theology, who 
They, mm. they believed that the only revelations were via the scripture. And their reason for thinking that was that, well, personal revelation, it could always be uh, the voice of Satan. Okay. And so it could not be relied upon. So she makes this assertion and this gives them the grounds to convict her and so forth. Yeah. Um, Sorry about that long-winded explanation. (laughs) I hope hope it doesn't sound bad when we play it back. (laughs) No, I'm I'm sure it'll sound great. I I wanted to add um, two things. One, I think it's really interesting in um, Lepore's book, American Jezebel, I couldn't remember the name, how she says Anne Hutchinson actually wasn't a feminist, even though now she's kind of admired to be one. And she was really just a woman of her time. She probably would have been disgusted or offended by the idea of of any type of feminist ideology. Um, The other thing I'll say is that if you want to better understand Anne Hutchinson, what she was fighting for, I highly suggest listening to Jack's podcast. There's a hot take at the end of at the third episode about her. That's really interesting. I won't have him spoil it now so that everyone can go and listen to it. Um, I want to shift focus a bit, though, and discuss the Narragansett tribe um, who my listeners will probably remember are primarily located and inhabiting the western side of Narragansett Bay. Pretty much they it's all of their territory. You can think of it that way. Um, and in the 17th century, the Narragansett people become hyper focused on producing wampum or as they call it, wampum pig. Uh, can you tell my listeners a little bit about what is wampum and why it became so incredibly important in uh, the 17th century New England economy? Sure. Uh, so, um, wampum uh, was um, a uh, were essentially polished beads that had a hole drilled in them so they could be threaded uh, and made from particular uh, two or three species of different shellfish that live on the. Excuse me live on the coast there, mm-hmm. uh, Long Island Sound, in effect, coast of southern New England and along Long Island. And um, they've been manufactured uh, by the tribes in the region since long before Europeans arrived um, and um, were traded um, pr- principally to the north, to the Iroquois and upstate New York, uh, who would... Um, use them for ceremonial and other purposes and valued wampum highly because they didn't have access to seashells and such up there. So they would trade furs and other things down to the New England tribes. The Dutch, uh, when they showed up in the 1620s, um, they positioned themselves quite famously uh, on uh, obviously Manhattan, uh, uh, trading posts up the Hudson, including, uh, Fort Orange near Albany and, or at Albany and, um, uh, and, uh, in an outpost on the Connecticut river, which they called good hope, which is basically where Hartford is. And, and the Dutch, um, figured out, um, that, um, you know, they wanted to be the middlemen in this operation. Mm. Uh, and they positioned themselves geographically, essentially between the tribes on the New England coast and Long Island uh, and the Iroquois. The other thing they figured out is uh, they could 
massively increase the production of wampum by supplying European tools. So, you know, try drilling a hole in a little shell with a stone, you know, the edge of a stone, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's going to take a long time. You're probably going to screw it up a bunch. You probably wreck a bunch of them. Now yeah. take a, you know, relatively fine, you know, iron awl and uh, Hubble, quiet. Sorry. Apologize, <laughs> apologize for this. I'm just here alone. I got no option. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so th they, they were able to supply the tribes along the coast with tools and massively increase the production of wampum. They essentially increased the money supply. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, these tribes, in including the, the uh, especially the Pequots actually mm -hmm. um, um, started uh, making more wampum and the Pequots got it in their head. They did been a warlike tribe for some time. They got it in their head to start, coercing other tribes into making wampum for them so yeah. they could and they cut an exclusive deal to trade wampum with the dutch okay mm. so i i had an episode uh back in uh six months ago called fathoms of wampum because yeah. wampum was stitched together in these belts that were measured by fathoms mm -hmm. uh and uh so um they really in that regard uh, kind of upset the ancient econ economic trading patterns of the region. Well, um, you know, um, at that various points, uh, you know, wampum came into sort of excess supply, right? You know, yep. <laughs> and, and it was like they were printing money. <laughs> so they they tried to find other ways to monetize it. And, and um, uh, the Dutch uh, introduced it to the English along the coast. Um, and the English started using wampum, um, but that created the opportunity for, um, um, that sort of broke the Pequot, uh, monopoly in a way, because it created opportunity for the tribes to sell their wampum to the English. Yeah. Uh, and that was also very destabilizing. So anyway, um, the, uh, wampum trade really upset the balance of power among the various tribes. It caused conflict. Eventually the Pequots um, um, who had very good relations with the Dutch uh, started getting into conflicts with the Dutch and uh, um, uh, various tribal alliances formed that, that um, um, you know, might have led to intertribal war and did to some degree, including between the Pequots and the Narragansetts. And then the English thought it'd be a super good idea to put their own settlements on the Connecticut river, which as you know, goes North South through Connecticut and a fort at the mouth of the Connecticut river. And this mm -hmm. essentially put the English geographically between the Narragansetts, you know, in the Western side of Rhode Island, if you will, and the Pequots uh, in southern Rhode Island, um, yep. and uh, and there were a bunch of other tribes involved. And there's maps and my podcast episodes on this, which people can go look at. Yep, yeah. Um, and I would highly suggest also listening to the episode you mentioned, Fathoms of Wampum. It was one I listened to twice actually, 
when I was working on an episode specifically about the Narragansett people, I think you do a fantastic job of describing the, the wampum economy. Um, I, w- I have two more questions for you. Um, the, the first one is around this obsession with land um, in New England, which I found really interesting because it's not like the populations were massive back then. I mean, in 1640, there's what, 8,000 people in Massachusetts, yet there's this continuous and obsessive push for more land. They try to steal Rhode Island's land. They try to take some of the Narragansett people's land. What made them so obsessed with needing more land when their populations weren't even that big? What's driving this? Well, um, their population was growing, right? So um, they had a ton of immigration during to the Bay Colony during uh, the 1630s until it stopped with the uh, ascendance of the Puritans in England in the early 1640s, because then mm-hmm. you didn't need any more refugees. Um, you know, I think my sense of it is that the land around Boston um, was in general not great for yeah. either, you know, lots of agriculture or grazing livestock. Um, yeah. Okay. And uh, the land that they spotted first that was extremely, you know, um, fertile and valuable for both of those uses was actually in the Connecticut River Valley. So that's why Mm. that's why Massachusetts, both Plymouth Colony and the Bay Colony set up settlements uh, there, in addition to their desire to interfere with the Dutch trade coming down the Connecticut River. So Mm. there was sort of all of these considerations all at once. Got it. So I think that that was the biggest factor. I mean, even today, even today, if you drive around suburban Boston, you know, it doesn't look like Prima ranch land, right? There's sort of rocks everywhere and, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, All right. Last question for you. Um, I tell my listeners far too often about how incredible Rhode Island history is, why it's underrated. Uh, why it needs to be discussed more. Um, another reason why I love your podcast, you have six whole episodes about the, some of the founders of Rhode Island specifically. So kudos to you. But I'm biased, obviously. You tell my listeners um, why they should be so proud of Rhode Island's history and, and what makes it so remarkable to you. Well, I would start by saying that I think um, you know, my inclination is that people should take an interest in their regional history, especially if they have family roots in the region or they've adopted it. I've I've moved to Texas only 12 years ago, and I'm pretty interested in Texas history. Um, So I think, I think getting, taking an interest in it and, and a pride, if you've got identity there is, it's a great thing. I think there's Mm -hmm. um, too little of that right now. So that's the general point. I think specifically, look, Rhode Island, um, uh, and its founders, especially Roger Williams, um, you know, did a bunch of early things that, you know, and this is very presentist, but they they did a bunch of early things that uh, certainly seem way ahead of their time. One, radical separation of church and state, which they maintained. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, along with, you know, essentially Maryland doing that. I'm working on Maryland now. Uh, you know, um, with that was really foundational and new. It was yeah. very new. Uh, nobody had that idea before in 
anywhere in Christian lands. Um, and and I think the other thing that that could be said about it is, um, which is quintessentially American, is is because of that. Rhode Island became this gathering point for, you know, sort of cranks from all over the uh, uh, East Coast of uh, today's United States, um, outcasts, dissidents, yep. um, and including some people who drove Roger Williams nuts. Like, I mean, yeah. he had, and it's not worth going into, but he really couldn't stand the Quakers. And there's like <laughs> deep. Yeah. I, I actually. It, my son went to a Quaker school in Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> I, I never met anyone who didn't like Quakers until I started reading about Roger Williams, but I think they were quite a bit more annoying then. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, it, uh, they, you know, they attracted sort of all these people to such a degree, by the way, that the Dutch began to get worried about Rhode Island, right? Oh, wow. Rhode Island was filled with all of these sort of, you know, you know, sort of dissidents and cranks and, you know, the geography isn't that big. Who wants yeah. these people that nearby? But I think that in the American tradition where we, we really have a, a long, uh, you know, we have a sort of cultural affinity for the dissidents and the cranks. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that Rhode Island uh, was the real epicenter of that for a very long time. And Roger Williams gets the credit. I mean, as, as yeah. you will, tell the story. If you haven't quite gotten to it, I'm not quite sure how far you are. You know, he outmaneuvers the Massachusetts Bay. He outmaneuvers all attempts to sort of grab Rhode Island from him. And yeah. uh, really through a sort of miraculous political effort in the 1640s, manages to get a charter for the place and hold it against all the encroaching uh, uh, neighboring uh, neighboring uh, uh, colonies, Connecticut, and uh, obviously the Dutch. So yeah. anyway, great story. Perfect. Well said. Um, great spot to end it on. Before we wrap it up, uh, first, I'd like to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. I cannot express enough. Once again, to my listeners, listen to History of the Americans. Jack, uh, to end it, do you mind telling everyone where they can find your podcast, website, um, hosting sure. the podcast and everything? Yeah, sure thing. Well, you can get it on uh, any of the podcatchers. I don't do video, so it's not on YouTube. I probably should do something on YouTube. Um, uh, uh, so you can get it on all the podcasts. Just search for The History of the Americans or History of the Americans, Henneman or anything like that. Um, and I have a, a website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, where I have extra stuff in the show notes like maps and other things. Uh, and uh, I sometimes, uh, I have a blog on that. You can read occasional musings on his history related topics that come up. You can find me on Twitter, look for the history of the Americans uh, and, uh, or Jack Henneman and it'll come up. Uh, so I uh, am grateful for the opportunity uh, to talk to your listeners, and I very much appreciate you inviting me on to, to do this. Thank you for listening. 
to the store of Rhode Island. If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island Podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.